John chapter 15 this morning. We're working through some proofs, proofs of faith, and we come to the second proof here in John chapter 15, verses 1 through 17. If you're able, would you stand with me as I read God's word? Heavenly Father, we pray that you would come upon us today, that your Holy Spirit would simply fill us and open our eyes and our hearts to your word, that we might understand it and that we might live it out. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. John chapter 15, verses 1 through 17. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it shall be done for you. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. This I command you, that you love one another. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. There are so many things in this chapter that we just are not going to cover them all. We'll be back to them over time, I'm sure. But we're going to pick out one thing, and it goes along with the theme here of of these proofs, if you abide in me. And that's a proof of faith, by abiding in Christ, abiding in Christ. Now, the larger context and teaching and theme of this passage deals with the vine. Jesus is the true vine and the father is the vine dresser or the gardener. And there are a variety of guesses why he goes into this at this point. Okay, if you see at the end of verse of of chapter 14, um, he he goes, uh, arise, let us go from here. So they're in the upper room and he says, come on, let's go. So there is some thought that they are walking through Jerusalem over to the Garden of Gethsemane and they pass the temple. And there on the temple is this decoration or this 
golden vine that is there. And perhaps he stops in front of the temple and points to that as an illustration. Something that everyone in Jerusalem would understand is vine dressing. I mean, uh, people grew a lot of grapes. It's almost as common as being a shepherd. So it was an illustration that was very plain and everybody understood what he was talking about. This also carries on in the context of the I am statements. I'm the bread, I'm the life, I'm the door. It says I am the vine here. Now, from what I've been able to discover about vine dressing, uh, there are two responsibilities. The vine dresser has two responsibilities to the vine. Cut off the branches that are dead. Prune the suckers. Now, suckers were a parasitic plant that would grow on a healthy vine. And that parasitic plant would draw off the nutrients of the healthy vine so it would produce less fruit or no fruit. Okay, It would be alive, but it just wouldn't produce. So the vine dresser's job was to cut off the dead things, prune off the things that hinder any production of fruit. You don't want a fruitless branch. Okay, So that was the vine dresser's responsibility. Now you'll notice that this is precisely what the father does. In verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, that it may bear more fruit. Okay? No fruit, lops it off. Bearing fruit, let me trim you down so that you can do more. So that you can do more. The purpose is so healthy branches produce more fruit. If you're attached to Christ and you're producing fruit, the Lord will prune you so you will produce more fruit. Okay? More fruit. If you're not producing any fruit... Danger, he's going to lop you off. Not because he doesn't lop off live branches. He doesn't lop off those who are believers. It's not as if uh, the Lord says, well, well, you know, Rand, I've given you the chance, okay? Uh, you know, I've, I've saved you, and for the last 30 years, you haven't produced a lick of fruit, so I'm going to unsave you. He never does that, okay? Now, understand, we'll, we'll deal with this more as we get into the passage. There are no fruitless Christians. There are no fruitless Christians. There are times in the Christian life that we don't produce fruit. Okay? But you can't look at your life and say, well, I've been a Christian all my life. What fruit do you have to show for it? I don't have any fruit. I've not produced any fruit. You've got a problem. Okay? Either your profession is wrong or your application of your profession is wrong. Okay? Now, there are no fruitless Christians. We'll look at that some more in just a moment. So just to remind you, because we have studied this passage before, and to give you an overview, Jesus is the true vine, he is the true light, he's the true bread, he's the door, that's the I am statements. And this section in John is foreshadowed in the Old Testament in a variety of places. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Psalms, Uh, the vine is a well-known symbol for Israel in the Old Testament. And most of the time the Lord is using the illustration of the vine not in a good way, but in a negative way, in the sense that Israel, you ought to be producing fruit, but you're you're not producing fruit, so the Lord is going to prune you and discipline you. Sometimes we see the pruning means a complete pruning, sometimes it means a minor pruning, and sometimes it simply means getting the vine off the ground. Now, if you've spent any time around where there are grapes growing and vines, then you know that they are a viney thing. They reach out and they, they, sometimes they get onto the ground. A vine on the ground will not produce fruit. 
it must be lifted up. That's why they have those, uh, you know, those thingies upon which the vines rest. If you, you know, you, you walk down the, the, the rows and you see they're up on wooden thingies. I, I, I'm sorry, I don't know the technical term. Trellis or whatever. Trellis or an arbor. Thank you. Okay. And I just thought it was a thingy. Oh, my goodness. Okay. <laughs> For we understand the Lord will sometimes prune us, or in a sense, or cleanse us, uh, and he will remove from the believer what is detrimental to our spiritual life. Now, frankly, I would rather be part of that. I would rather see that in my own life than have the Lord come and do it, you know, without my involvement. I want to be involved in those things. I don't want the Lord to come in and say, Randy, I've given you the chance. I'm going to start pruning away. And all of a sudden I go, oh, I wasn't quite ready for this. That we, we understand. We want to be a part of that. And we also understand that pruning deals with our maturity level as well. Okay, having three girls in my house, we had Barbies everywhere in the house and, and American Girl dolls and, and just everything. You don't go to your six-year-old and say, you know what, you're too old to be playing with dolls and confiscate all their dolls. That's just not right. But if you're a 30-year-old woman and you spend all your time, you know, combing your Barbie's hair and, and dressing your Barbie and going on dates with Barbie and Ken in the convertible, and stuff, maybe it's time to put those things aside. Okay, and get into the life that 30-year-old that women are supposed to, to live that's full of maturity in the deeper things of life. So sometimes the Lord prunes us relative to our maturity level. The new believer wants milk, needs milk. That's what it takes to live. The mature believer, hopefully you understand, you want some red meat. You want the deeper things of the Lord. Look at your personal devotion life. I mean, do you still, are you still reading David and Goliath and going, yeah, that's really cool, I love that story. Or Daniel and the lion's den? Okay. There are deep and rich things to get from that. But if you're only an inch deep in your study of the word, there's a problem. There's a problem. What was the last Christian book that you read? Okay, Not the Bible, something else. I'm going to assume you're reading this. What was the last Christian book that you, that you read? Did it make you feel good? Did you, when you read it, did you just get a good fuzzy off of it? Or did it challenge you to think about your life and the life you were supposed to live for Christ in a different way? Did it push you to apply your faith to a greater degree? Did it cause you to reevaluate your priorities and your lifestyle, how you live out your faith? Someone recommended to me this week this book, and uh, so I, I looked it up, and there's this quote. The University of Georgia football coach Mark Reich told the Atlanta Journal-Constitution that he read a book called A Hole in the Gospel. A Hole in the Gospel. It inspired him to downsize his life, which included selling his second home. Reich said, I challenge anybody to read this book and not be affected by it. And not be affected by it. What was the last book that you read? Did it challenge you to such a degree? Now, this is the best-selling book ever. The next best-selling Christian book would be Pilgrim's Progress. Okay, Pilgrim's Progress. Have you read Pilgrim's Progress? Have you read any of the biographies of the great missionaries? David Brainerd, as an example. Does your devotional material include anything written by Martin Luther or John Calvin or Charles Spurgeon? Do you have the works of R.C. Sproul or John MacArthur or Ravi Zacharias or J.I. Packer or John Piper or John Murray or Walt Kaiser or Sinclair Ferguson on your shelves? 
They're down here in the front row. Okay? I just pulled off a gob of books from my shelves. And, and down here on the front row are probably 30 books. If you've not heard of those authors or you're thinking, well, gee, Randy says I should be reading them. Who are they? Come and borrow one. Take it home and read it. My name should be stamped in the front. If after a year you find it on your shelf and feel guilty, you'll know you have to bring it back, okay? But they're down here. After the service, come down and root through them. These are rich, okay? And it understands, if you've been a believer for 20 minutes, these books are probably over your head. If you've been a believer for five years, these books will challenge you. If you've been a believer for 30 years, I hope these books will confirm where you should be and what you should be doing, okay? Take them. Read them. Feast on the things that are there in God's word. Okay? This is what we are called to do. You know, Mr. Universe doesn't lay around thinking strong thoughts. The triathlete does not sit in his room and visualize himself riding the bike for 100 miles. I don't know how people ride bike for 100 miles. Okay? He does not visualize himself swimming. He gets out there and does it and pushes his body to the limit. The same thing we are to do. We are to feast on the word, and it should push us to change our life and to conform more and more to the things of Christ. Your life should conform. The longer you are a believer, the more your life should conform to Christ. There will be moments where we go right down the drain. Okay, We all know that. But our life in general should take on more and more the tenor and tone and the imitation of Jesus Christ. Okay, now to the heart of what this passage is about. Abide in me. Jesus says, remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine and we are the branches. That's what Jesus tells us. If a man remains in me, and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Abide or remain can have three meanings in this application, okay, as it is used. One is a declaration, you must remain in me. The second is a promise, remain in me and I will remain in you. And the third is a command, see to it that you remain in me. And that's the application that we're talking about here in this passage. Jesus is commanding us, see to it that you remain in me. We should live such lives that Jesus will continue to abide in us, to fill us up. Okay? There are fruitless times in the, life's belie- in the believer's life. We all understand that. Times where we think, geez, you know, what am I doing? Okay, my Christian life just looks pitiful. What's going on here? And then there are other times where the fruit simply, it, it, it just hangs off of us. And, and where we continue to produce it and produce it and produce it. Okay? But you won't produce fruit if you're not abiding in Christ. There is no such thing, as I said before, as a fruitless Christian. So any branch that doesn't bear fruit, the Lord's going to lop off. Any branch that is dead... Okay, any of those things in our lives that are parasitical to our lives, that are causing us problems, that are, are draining away our spiritual energy, the Lord is going to get rid of those. We should want to get rid of those ourselves, but if we don't, the Lord will come in and he will prune us. Now, what might be types of things that we could classify as fruit? And this is just a cursory review. Fruit might be godly families might be our ability to reproduce in evangelism. 
Might be generosity, not necessarily public, but sometimes very private generosity. Look at the qualifications for elders and deacons in Timothy. Most of those qualifications deal with character. How does the Lord, how does, this, how does society look upon the person who is an elder? Do they have a good reputation? Those types of things are fruit, okay, are fruit. Examples of holiness in our lives. Now, sometimes fruit is very concrete. Perhaps you were asked to be a Sunday school teacher for two weeks and fill in, and it took you 30 years to, to work through that job, okay? That's fruit, okay? Perhaps you visited or cooked or sang or played or sacrificed or discipled or modeled the Christian life, and, and others saw that, and their life grew. That is fruit. So the Father is pruning us that we might produce more fruit. Turn over to Luke chapter 23. and we have more fruit and we have much fruit Christians. Dan, I'm only going to use this mic today. Okay, so we see this, but we never have a no fruit Christian. Now the, you think, well, what about the people that, that just before they pass away, they become believers? Well, we're going to look at one right here. Luke chapter 23, verse 39. This is the thief on the cross. You think, well, what fruit did the thief on the cross produce? Let's look at verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Well, save yourself and save us. But the other answered, rebuking him, said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. So what fruit did the thief on the cross bear? It was his confession. It was his confession of the innocence of Christ. It was his confession that I am a sinner and he is not. I deserve this punishment and he does not deserve it. Yes, he was with Christ in paradise on that day. Well, when and how much will the believer bear? Well, I'm told from... From what I have read, that vines need at least three years of cultivation before they are ready to bear fruit. They have to grow and be trimmed and grow and be trimmed and grow and be trimmed. And that's a process. And only after that process of pruning and trimming are they ready to bear fruit. Now, there are times in the life of the believer when we wonder if we'll ever bear fruit. But maybe those are the times where we're being pruned and we're being trimmed. And at the end of that time... We will blossom in a great fashion. What does not qualify as fruit? What does not qualify as fruit? Again, cursory study. Attending church does not qualify as bearing fruit. In the same sense that hanging out in the garage does not qualify you as a Buick. Okay? That's just straightforward, smart. Participation does not qualify as fruit, nor does a life of acquiescence to the things of Christ over against embracing the things of Christ. Okay, there's a distinction between um, acquiescing to the things of Christ, you know, my spouse makes me go to church, my kids guilt me into this or whatever, over against embracing the things of Christ. This is what I seek. This is what I love. This is what I am. My whole life needs to be moved in this direction. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3.
to bear fruit, I must decrease and he must increase. That's what John the Baptist said. Now, Paul does talk about selfish fruit and unselfish fruit. Okay, now both of these things that Paul refers to here are from the believer. Okay, now we're just kind of going to take a little sidestep and, and look at this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10. According to the grace of God which was given to me, as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building upon it. But let each man be careful how he builds upon it. Now he's talking about the believer who's producing things, okay? For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Let me read verse 14. If any man's work which he has built upon it remains, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as through fire. What he's talking about here in this instance is that there are works that are done by the believer which further the kingdom, but basically are done out of selfish motives. Okay? I want to look better. I want to be successful. Uh, I want people to think that I'm very spiritual, so I do these work. Do they further the kingdom? Yes, they further the kingdom, but at the moment of judgment, they'll be found to be wood, hay, and stubble. Because they were done out of selfish motives. Now, the one who does things out of unselfish motives, those things make it through, in a sense, the fires of judgment. And they are gold and silver and precious stones. They are done for the glory of Christ. I mean, we, we talk a lot about this. Why were we created? We were created to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Okay? What should our works, what should the goal of our works be? To glorify God. Should Randy be a part of that? Well, I have to do the works, but I'm empowered by Christ. And, and you know, good thing if nobody remembers my name. Okay? Good thing if nobody goes, goes, that was Randy did that. That was great. Better they go, who was that guy? Well, I don't know. But look what the Lord has done. That's what you want. Those are gold and silver and precious stones. We will all have some of those. Pretty sure we're all going to have wood, hay, and stubble, too. Okay? Because we're not perfect. We're not perfect. Back to John 15. Look at verse 7. This goes to some of what we talked about earlier in the, in the books that are laid out here. Verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done. Okay, now we've looked at that last portion before and how we are to pray. I want to look at the first half of that. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. How do his words abide in us? Let me quote John Piper. I've got some of his books down here. This also sheds a light on what it means for the words of Jesus to abide in us. Letting the words of Jesus abide in us means letting Jesus abide in us in a position of speaking to us. It means that we welcome Jesus into our lives and make room for him to live, not as a silent guest with no opinions or commands, but as an authoritative guest whose opinions matter more to us than anyone else's and who commands, whose commands are the law of our life. 
Christ abiding in us is interchangeable with his words abiding in us because Christ never comes without his authoritative view on things. Jesus never comes in and says, hey, I'm going to take up residence in your life. You go do what you want. Jesus comes with his authoritative words. To have him abiding in us is to have all of his views abiding in us. To have all of his priorities abiding in us. If he abides in us, then his principles will abide in us. If he abides in us, then his promises will abide in us. If he abides in us, then his commandments will abide in us. When Christ abides in us, then his words abide in us as well. Okay? It doesn't mean we just, we just read the Bible as a book. We don't just memorize it. We don't just meditate on it. We seek these things. This is the truth of God's word. I want to feast on it. I want to consume as much as I can. I don't want it just to be something that sits in the back of my mind and I can pull out, oh, whenever it fits. I want it to so consume me that it comes out my pores. That's what abiding in Christ means. That's what having his word abide in us. So that your conversation is salted with the things of Christ. Okay, we have, Jude and I have this great friend in, one of the, in Wilmington, and whenever we get together, it takes about... 30 seconds to catch up on the kids, okay? And then we're into the spiritual things, okay? Because those are the things that are important. And it's not some holy roller kind of thing. It is a love of the things of Christ. What is Christ doing? Let me share with you what he's doing, okay? These are the great things. That's what it means for the word of God, simply to abide in us, that we seek it out. So letting the words of Jesus abide in us is not like memorizing the theorems or the geometry proofs or anything like that. It's not even, you know, mulling over stuff. It's chewing on it. It's digesting it. It's having it inside of us to the point where it, it, it in a sense, forces out the other things. So eventually the word of God comes out of us. It means taking whatever step is necessary To keep the word of God within us. So when the words of Jesus abide in us and we hear them and respond to them as living words from the mouth of a living God who cares for us, who has given his life for us, says when my words abide in you, he means if you receive and remember and believe and ponder the living words of the living God and in your life act upon them, you will bear much fruit. I will be in you and you will bear fruit. Oh, Rand, you're talking about me actually using my brain and, and consuming the word of God, and, you know, I don't read very fast. And you think, well, you know, I, I tend on the fast side of reading, but I know there are people who just, they just read at a nice little pace. If you read at the pace that you speak, you get about 200 words a minute. Okay? So just keep that in your mind, 200 words a minute. So if you were to take 15 minutes a day, read the Word, read Christian books that that are are based upon the Word, that challenge us to a deeper understanding, 15 minutes a day, 200 words a minute, you will read for approximately 5,500 minutes in the year. Multiply that by 200 words a minute, and you get somewhere just over a million words a year. Okay, a million words a year. Now, the average book has about 360 pages, so that works out to about 3,000 pages a year. That works out to about 13 books a year, just over one a month. You could read most of those books here on the front row in a year. 
at 15 minutes a day. Just letting the word of God dwell in you richly. So Jesus doesn't say, those who appear to be within me, but every branch that is in me. The believer's assurance is not in his or her decision to follow Christ. Don't think that, well, I stood up on church and raised my hand, so I'm going to heaven. No. If your faith is in your action, it is misplaced. This is one of my favorite quotes from Charles Spurgeon. But the Holy Spirit turns our eyes entirely away from self. He tells us that we are nothing, but that Christ is everything. Remember, therefore, it is not your hold of Christ that saves you. It is Christ. It is not your joy in Christ that saves you. It is Christ. It is not even faith in Christ, although that is the instrument. It is Christ's blood and merits. Therefore, do not look so much to your hand with which you are grasping Christ as to Christ. Do not look to your hope, but to Jesus, the source of your hope. Do not look to your faith, but to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of your faith. You will never find happiness but looking at our prayers, our deeds, or our feelings. It is what Jesus is, not what we are, that gives rest to the soul. When you awaken in the morning, look to him. When you lie down at night, look to him, for he never fails you. Abide in me, and I will abide in you. Let's pray. Lord, the the passage is so easy. All we have to do is abide in you, to rest in you, to seek after you, to seek after your word, to fill our hearts and our minds with the things of Christ. If we abide in you, you will abide in us, and we will bear much fruit. We can't make it on our own. We can't bear fruit if we're out there trying to do it ourselves. Your promises are clear. The believer is called to fill our hearts and our minds with the things of Christ. If we do that, if that's the longing of our heart, you will be within us, and the fruit will pour from our lives. It will not be for our glory, but it will be for yours, for the glory of our Heavenly Father, for the things of the kingdom, for the glory of Christ. Abide in me and I will abide in you. Those are your promises, Lord. We pray that we live them. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.